Hello, and welcome back to the Performance Cycling Podcast. I'm Todd Norwood, here with my co-host, Jason Hammond. How's it going, Todd? Going well. So what are we talking about today? Today, we're going to talk about overtraining. And this is something that I think a lot of people have talked about, but we would just uh, kind of want to get the word out almost. This is, in my opinion, um, probably the, like, I think it's probably the number one reason that riders will stop riding or leave the sport other than like big crashes. Um, but overtraining is a, a really big issue for a lot of athletes and it's something that you should be aware of. And it's not that hard to avoid, but you have to be on top of it and you have to be um, aware of the symptoms and how you can you know, get over it almost or um, how you can avoid it in the first place. Yeah, like manage your fatigue appropriately and, and such. And I, I mean, I think the interesting thing about overtraining syndrome is it's not terribly well understood. It is and it isn't, right? Like what's what's driving it is sort of a, an unknown to a certain degree. Like we, we know it's a real thing, but then when it comes to let's measure overtraining syndrome, we fall short when it comes up to things like that. Yeah, so that we're, we're absolutely going to talk about that. And uh, a large part of this podcast episode is a review of overtraining, and we'll include a link to that white paper in uh, the show notes. But a, a lot of the white paper said there is no conclusive evidence and every hypothesis. Well, maybe. Right. And, uh, and there's no just... no definitive blood test that you can do or anything to say like, oh, yep, you're you know approaching overtraining syndrome, back off. Yep. So there is one hint at the end that can give more light. It doesn't give a, a definitive answer, but it can shed more light on why it's so hard to nail down what's happening or identify exactly what the causes of overtraining is or how we can identify it easily. So we'll get there. Don't want to jump ahead, of course. So um, it's also worth mentioning that this is in the USA Cycling Coaches Manual, the idea of overtraining, which shows the importance of this uh, topic. So one thing that I tell a lot of um, my friends is you should just get the level three coaches manual from USA Cycling. I think it's like 40 bucks. So um, maybe a little bit expensive, but it's a 10 chapter book and it's sort of made for the uh, the dad who wants to help their kid get uh, more involved in cycling and gives like a brief overview of you know human anatomy and recovery and nutrition and gives a good overview of all these really key points about cycling and can inform someone who's maybe um, less involved in the sport oh okay th- i see where you know a rider can differentiate themselves and, and be a um, be a, a better rider than mm-hmm. another rider and um, for them to mention overtraining as a chapter is a bit of a you know a sign that okay this is one of the 10 most important things sure in a, in a foundational sort of a text yeah so uh first we'll talk about the definitions um for this podcast there's um three that we're going to go over the first one is functional overreaching with the acronym for for and uh, this is sort of the basis of a lot of training especially elite training uh, a lot of pros will overreach and the idea is you accept a decrease in short-term form so you allow yourself to get into a bit of a hole with the promise that when you recover you'll be able to stand on top of the mound that you of the dirt you just dug Mm -hmm. I, i like this analogy of digging a hole and then standing on the mound and this is you know 
all of the pro riders do this sort of um let's like really go into the cave for a month and then we pop out and we're a lot stronger mm-hmm. and this is how also a lot of amateur athletes will uh ride especially if you can get consistent training and you are doing focus training mm-hmm. that's the the goal as well so this is the the good uh, this is yeah. where you want to be I mean, this is the overload principle in training more or less right applied as it should be and the desired result of supercompensation at the end of the cycle yep so the the next definition definition is non-functional overreaching so this is a short-term reduction in performance that when you recover fully you do not get any performance benefit as a result even after the rest so you've dug the hole and when you climb out of the hole you're you didn't stand on the mound you're standing on the grass that you started on Mm -hmm. and this is sort of uh the the easy mode of overtraining this is the the start of overtraining. the doorstep of overtraining yeah so this is an indication of say you do a month block or a two-month block and you think that when you recover you should be really increasing you do your power test or you you somehow measure your ability and and it doesn't improve it's just the same this could be a good time to start looking at what symptoms you have and maybe changing your plan and taking mm-hmm. some rest. So we'll talk about some techniques to get out of non-functional overreaching. Uh, the acronym for it, for this is, um, so some publications use like NAFOR or N4, which would just be non in front of the four acronym for functional overreaching. But a lot also do NFO, which I think is better because NAFOR uh, isn't quite as exciting. So... Um, the last one, which this is the one we really want to avoid, uh, because this, your body is, uh, in a pretty bad place. If you are, um, you know, it's, it's difficult to diagnose these different, uh, syndromes, but if you are actually overtrained, your body's in a really bad place. And so we, the goal is to avoid being overtrained at all and to catch these symptoms and to take the rest before you get here. But this would be a maladapted response to excessive exercise without adequate rest. And would result in a perturbation of multiple body systems coupled with mood changes. Mm -hmm. So we'll talk about specific symptoms, but it's really about like your body systems aren't working properly anymore. And it's a a full body effect of just dysfunction. And it's a result of excessive exercise and inadequate rest. And that's why they use that word syndrome, right? Is it's a, it's a collection of things that makes up this condition it's not just like oh there's just one thing it's like oh you broke your collarbone that's very simple we don't call it fractured collarbone syndrome it's just a fractured collarbone things like an overtrained syndrome there's a collection of signs and symptoms that go together uh for you to make that diagnosis before you say like ah yes this is the thing it fits it fits this pattern and uh to add on the the back end of the definition um states the, the one we have here and a decreased performance that persists despite despite weeks to months of recovery. Mm-hmm. So if you take a week off, take a couple of weeks off, and you start to feel better, that's more of the NFO kind of uh, issue. Whereas if you take a month off or two months off and you still feel lousy, you still have symptoms, that's more of the overtraining syndrome sort of issue. So like we said, it's really difficult to diagnose and quantify even. So there are actually some uh, literature debates almost between different papers where, well, I would actually count half of those athletes as only being NFO and not actually being overtrained syndrome. And so I think that your results aren't valid. And it's almost like they can't define what the different groups are. So how could you possibly define a ways to 
you know, get out of it or diagnose it or learn about the causes of it. And this is a, a big dispute area and something that uh, more research and more definition is needed to you know, really nail down. So um, a bunch of studies, we also said this, um, hormonal changes, immune system response, heart rate, heart rate variability, and a few other uh, key factors. None of them, well, they were largely inconclusive. Mm -hmm. Some of them had conclusions, some didn't, but for the most part, they were um, divergent on their conclusions. Right. There, there's no magical metric for you to say like, oh yes, just track your heart variability or your pulse or this, and then you'll know if it's happening or not happening. Sure. And then, of course, our goal is to not have either NFO or OTS. Wouldn't it be great if we all could just functionally overreach constantly? Um, of course, uh, that, you know, that stops eventually. There is some sort of asymptotic peak performance that it may be genetically limited. But um, for the most part, we want to be in this overreaching where we slowly get better and we dig a hole, we get out. We dig a hole, we get out. And we just slowly build up our mound. Mm -hmm. And uh, if we start to do non-functional overreaching, then the goal would be to avoid OTS. So we want to catch it as soon as possible, as soon as we diverge from uh, functional overreaching. And then, uh, so the, the paper that we reference says that the highest risk groups were individual sports, cycling, low physically demanding sports, not cycling, <laughs> uh, female athletes, and elite athletes. And uh, one study found that 60% of elite athletes had NFO at some point. So not necessarily full on OTS, but um, some sort of uh, non-functional overreaching. I guess that doesn't surprise me that it's a high percentage, right? Because at, at that level, you're pushing for you know every small increment of improvement. And so in well-meaning, well-planned overload training, you are at some point going to surpass what the body is capable of tolerating. Yeah, I think the other thing with elite athletes is they're trying to get an advantage in many different ways all at the same time. And mm -hmm. um, they, I like this really good quote from, uh, I'm going to, I don't remember who, so I'm sorry, but they said, are you getting better because of this thing you're doing or despite of this thing mm -hmm. you're doing? And so when these elite athletes say, well, I want to lose weight, I want to lift, I want to do this new diet, I want to, and they have like eight different things that they do are half of them making them slower and the other half making them faster and their net gain is zero. And yep. it's, there's too many variables to calculate. And I think an elite, an elite athlete is more likely to fall in that scenario than someone who's more of an amateur. Well, and I think we've talked about this many times on the podcast previously, but the idea that you're trying to apply stress to the system to get a response and the response is an improvement in your performance from the stress of training, but there's so many stresses that can go into the system. And some of these things, you know, you can talk about things we talked about previously, sauna, sauna time as part of your workout, uh, blood flow restriction training, resistance training, inadequate sleep, uh, there, you know, and many others. So how much of that stress can your body withstand and then be able to respond to to yield a, a better better fitness level? Yeah, and now that we're talking about stressors, I mean work stress for you know, for more amateur athletes, work stress, life relationship stress. Mm -hmm. For elite athletes, am I gonna get a contract next year? Uh, am I overweight? Like all this mental fatigue as well, uh, can really add on to the physical demands that you're pushing out of your body. So one, this is a bit of a divergence, but there's this thing called the MET score. We talked about the low physically demanding sports. Mm -hmm. So MET score is the rate of work of metabolic 
work when you're the metabolic rate when you're working versus the metabolic rate when you're resting. And um, so low physically demanding sports is six times as much during the event as if you're standing or or sitting. Vigorous walking and a little bit Uh, more. So actually it's even less like the sports they mentioned were like curling or uh, throwing sports like shot put or something. Although it's like peak instantaneous effort for shot put, I guess is quite vigorous but it's a purely so anaerobic are, and, and cp the units are per hour yeah so um, yeah. if you do three you know three shot puts in an hour uh, and, and it's like track sprinters right they uh they show up they do one sprint they wait 15 minutes ah maybe i'll do another and uh, so the total kilojoules is not very it's relatively low yep. yeah versus a you know a time trialist doing a proper hour it's, is, uh, yes it's those are high intensity creatine phosphate efforts versus longer aerobic efforts Yep. So it's funny that, um, so other examples are like golf or something like that. And it's interesting to think that, yeah, I wonder if, you know, you're swinging the club so many times that, um, you know, this, you just become dysfunctional or you stop improving. I guess that, that to me more seems like a repetitive stress injury, like a slightly different class than the the physiologic things that I think of with overtraining syndrome, but (laughs) So I mean, this just goes into show the uh, the variability in the the response mm-hmm. of the white papers on this topic. So another study uh, mentioned that nine percent of elite Swiss athletes had OTS at some point in their career. Nine percent and twenty one percent had NFO. So a smaller number of NFO, but a higher number of OTS than the other paper. So like nine percent is uh, pretty big yeah Yeah. and like proper overtrained syndrome is um you need to take like months off and some of those people don't ever return to their prior level yeah so more research into this would definitely improve some olympic programs Mm -hmm. (laughs) keep those uh athletes retained so uh another thing this is a little more subjective um but there are there's this idea of fast responders and slow responders so i'm a fast responder uh, which means that I respond to stimulus well. But uh, Todd, do you know, have an idea? I'd say I'm more on the faster end, certainly. Okay. So like there's a natural bell curve and some people will, you know, if you have 100 people all do the same workout, some people won't respond as well mm-hmm. as others. And so I know that I can peak really quickly or I, my numbers can pop up quickly. But um, I was told this is not you know, a white paper, but I was told that faster responders have a higher instance of overtraining and non-functional overreaching because of the opportunity for them to train super hard. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're improving, let's keep going. They're improving, let's keep going. And then, you know, it just goes off. You don't, you don't want to take that rest, right? Or you're not, yeah, you keep pushing through, even though in theory you should be resting. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, be aware of, you know, learn about what kind of rider you are and be aware of what, kinds of people are more likely to be um, exposed to these sort of issues. So let's go over the symptoms real quick. Um, I just have a list, so you know I'll, I'll just say them out. Um, trouble sleeping, constant muscle soreness. That's something like some people will say, um, my legs are sore walking up the stairs mm-hmm. is an indication, not like directly after your workout, but you know, the next morning. Or, um, and, and not like delayed onset muscle soreness from having a heavy lifting day. Yeah, but just like, you know, anytime you use your quads, they, yeah. they feel uh, not good. That's an example of constant muscle soreness. Constant tiredness and fatigue, um, weight loss, loss of appetite, decreased form. That's just, you know, my FTP is mm-hmm. lower. Um, getting sick often, 
overuse injuries, mood swings, and irrationality. Mm-hmm. Um, I've so I have uh, maybe we'll talk about this at the end, but um, I have some experiences with some of these different symptoms that I don't think are overtraining syndrome. So um, you have to be, and, and I mean some of those things like those that list half those things on that list are clinical manifestations of depression. Yeah. So actually that's the next one. Depression is the next uh, symptom and headaches as well. So, and I remember reading an article recently about um, the, how many pro cyclists have depression Mm -hmm. and it's all might be linked together. So, um, and I like this quote, actually, this is from Bilbo Baggins, our favorite uh, (laughs) hobbit. And uh, he said, I feel thin, like butter scraped over too much bread. And I think that's uh, like really useful for overtraining is uh, I think that's sort of a, spread, a, spread a little bit too yeah, thin. You're, you're like, oh, it's just like, yeah, there's not enough of me left almost. Um, so if you if you have that sentiment, you should probably uh, start to look to treat that. And um, we don't want to jump ahead to the treatment yet. But uh, let's talk about some of the causational hypotheses so this is the cool part it's a little more nerdy so get ready todd um the first hypothesis is glycogen uh low muscle glycogen the glycogen hypothesis um basically you have inadequate fueling so you can increase your muscle mass usage for energy uh so you you enter a catabolic state uh you you know don't have enough energy because you have low glycogen levels um, there is not a lot of literature supporting this hypothesis. Hint, there's not much literature supporting any of the ho- hypotheses I'm going to present. So this, to me, sounds, you know, you mentioned that female athletes are highly likely to experience overtrained syndrome. And, and this, to me, seems like one of the pieces of female athlete triad, the underfueling piece of the puzzle here, which is more common in uh, sports where, you know, weight matters. You see it like in the like gymnastics or in running oftentimes so it's it's interesting that that comes up as a, a hypothesis around overtraining because it seems like you know i think there's maybe more more links among things than there are differences at yeah. any rate so i think this hy- hypothesis holds a lot of weight compared to some of the others there is if we look at symptoms muscle soreness tiredness fatigue weight loss glycogen for every uh, one gram of like glycogen you need four grams of water mm-hmm. so if you're low on glycogen stores you could have a dramatically lower total weight mm-hmm. um, decreased form yeah you're not going to do your fdp test nearly as yep. well without glycogen yep. mood swings depression headaches um, maybe the depression not as much maybe more of instantaneous uh, mm-hmm. like loss of mood but um, these symptoms like really yeah. match up but I mean, instantaneous loss of mood, that, that's being hangry, right? I mean, that's... Yeah. So, uh, well, yeah, that's more of the mood swings than um, depression. Yeah, but, no, yes. Yeah. These are like, you're looking at the symptoms list. You're looking at uh, low glycogen levels. Um, well, you know, maybe the uh, these people suffering from non-functional overreaching or um, overtraining, should they just eat more glucose and mm-hmm. actually uh, there were some studies that tried to do that and that wasn't the solution there was no effect yeah, yeah. and uh, so it, it is more complicated than people just not having enough glycogen so another uh, hypothesis is central fatigue which is you have disrupted mood you have disrupted sleep you have behavior changes and there's this idea that there's um, a serotonin receptor in our brains the 5-HT receptor that could be disrupted because of um, some changes that occur in our brain during exercise. And some people are more 
likely to respond to um, in like a massive amount of tryptophan Mm -hmm. as a result of exercise. And this can cause some of the overtraining um, syndrome symptoms. And this really does not have much evidence, um, but it is the, so from a theoretical perspective, the mechanism could be an answer, but there hasn't been any real world studies that have um, proven or showed evidence of this actually being the cause. So the one big takeaway from this hypothesis though, is that uh, branch chain amino acids supplementation. So BCAAs Mm -hmm. um, have shown to cause marathon runners to feel more energized and mentally clear. So not really that much to do with overtraining, but that's a bit of maybe a hot tip for those who feel a bit groggy or lightheaded um, during harder efforts. Maybe you need a little bit of supplementation with BCAAs, see if that helps. There's also some interesting research around um, the brain using creatine as a a source for fuel, which again, brain is a a huge burner of glucose. So you wonder if there's some some interconnection between low glucose and maybe what's going on there, right? Maybe some of the... Um, more neuro brain based symptoms uh, like oh is that a low glucose thing happening mm-hmm. and uh, the next one is glutamine the glutamine hypothesis so I know you've talked about glutamine before mm-hmm. uh, I think it both in the supplement episode and the, the immune, immune episode yep mm-hmm. so um, glutamine is part of the um, immune system it's, it's used by the immune system to make sure that you stay healthy so low glutamine levels has been correlated with upper respiratory tract infections mm-hmm. in and in overtrained athletes specifically. So they had a study on overtrained athletes and they said that the low glutamine levels is correlated with the upper respiratory tract infection. But they also noted that overtrained, non-overtrained athletes also had right. upper respiratory mm-hmm. tract infections due to low glutamine. Mm-hmm. So there was no statistically significant evidence that there was any causation between the two. It was mm-hmm. just, you have low glutamine, so you're more, likely, you're more likely to have a, um, upper respiratory tract infection. So it's it's not uh, <laughs> it's not this. It's, it's, it's not, not the, the cause glutamine. of yeah. overtraining syndrome. It may be yeah. involved, but it's not the cause. Yeah. So uh, the next one is oxidative stress hypothesis. So oxidative stress is um, stresses that we have in our muscles and joints as well. Is that correct? Tissues generally. So uh, basically when you use tissues, they uh, have this stress and the stress is good because it causes uh, stimulus and we want muscle growth. We want uh, adaptations to the Mm -hmm. training. But if you have systematic, uh, excessive oxidative stress, it can cause inflammation, muscle fatigue, soreness, and uh, resting oxidative stress levels are higher in overtrained athletes compared to the controls. So this is um, the free radicals that get a bad rap. Because they're, you know, that's the result of oxidative stress, and this is why, in theory, you should have your antioxidant-rich, you know, leafy green vegetables and colorful foods on your plate, as to counter some of that oxidative stress. Because that's what the antioxidants do; they absorb the extra um, free radical. Yeah, but we also know it's more complicated than that because you need some inflammation. You need some mm-hmm. of this oxidative stress in order to get an adaptation. That's right. If there's so, no, yeah, it's inflammation is very interesting. Inflammation is not a bad thing. It, it also gets a bad rap, but it's a requisite part of the healing and the recovery process. Yep. So what's interesting about this is that um, overtrained syndrome athletes had higher resting oxidative stress levels, and they produced more oxidative stress during workouts. Mm-hmm. But there was no way to show whether the overtrained syndrome causes the oxidative stress or 
people who had higher oxidative stress had overtrained syndrome. So it's a chicken and co- an egg. Cor- correlation, not causation. Yeah. So they weren't able to show which one did which. Proceeded, yeah. Yeah. So eh, that one is also, it, it holds some water, but it's hard to say, you know, causality, of course. Yeah, you'd have to do a long-term study of people and constantly monitor their oxidative stress and see who gets overtrained and then then yeah. see. It. So one of the uh one of the paragraphs in the paper said um it is like ethically inappropriate to study overtrained syndrome because you know we don't we can't induce it in athletes. So the difficulty of doing research is you have to take it has to be observational. Yeah, you have to take a lot of athletes and you yeah. have to um, watch them. And it's like, okay, well, I'm glad you're not taking athletes and you do, know. do more, do too much, keep going, keep going. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're not doing that, but also um, this could be valuable research. So, uh, well, that's like the flu research, right? Where they give you, uh, or the not flu, the cold research, right? Where they give you and basically a, a nasal spray that has the rhinovirus. Yeah. They they pay you fairly decently for it. Yeah. Well, that's different. I mean, it's very, it's very different. No, yeah. Overtraining is like really, you know, with a cold, you're probably going to be better fairly shortly. It's inconvenient, but it was probably going to happen anyhow. Yep. So the next one is the autonomic nervous system hypothesis. So, um, Todd, this is your heart rate variability one. Mm -hmm. Um, basically your, your sympathetic activation is low and your parasympathetic uh, system dominates and this can cause overtraining syndrome symptoms so can you talk a little bit about, about those two symptoms or the two the, the uh, two systems, systems which is interesting because you know you think about okay we just talked about stress and training stress and typically the stress response system fight or flight uh, as it typically gets called is your sympathetic system so in a, a response to acute training load is typically um a response from the sympathetic system, which is going to result in a relative decrease in your heart rate variability. Um, so when you get into overtraining, though, you actually see the reverse. And I mean, I, the way I think about this, and you know, I may be incorrect, but it's basically like your your body really wants to rest, right? And so the the parasympathetic drive is really coming on really strong, and tr- like trying to force you into this rest. And so. Uh, Typically in physiology class, you talk about uh, fight or flight, which is your sympathetic, and then parasympathetic is rest and digest, because um, you know you had to have something that rhymed. Um, but nice. at any at any rate, the parasympathetic system is trying to make you slow down, recover, sort of do the the long term building projects, or in you know in this case, you know restore your your physiologic balance. So um, that's the maybe one thought is like even though theoretically you were under a big stressful load that's what led you down this path it's really the parasympathetic system that's taking over Um, the other thing that's interesting about this is if you have patients who don't have a good um, sympathetic response so some folks don't have uh, adequate adrenal glands you actually don't see their heart rate go up with response to exercise Part of it is, and so I think one of the things you see with overtraining, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that you don't you have a blunted heart rate response. Yep. And so that's I think related to this um, sympathetic parasympathetic balance is what you see that blunted response. Yep. And so of course, if you if you didn't guess by now regarding this hypothesis, there was no or low correlation between heart rate variability and overtrained syndrome. So. Um, 
it is interesting and this is a reason why it is presented as a hypothesis because it does hit a few points that make sense and almost your body is like forcing you to relax but mm-hmm. it's over the top forcing you to relax and it causes you to just have this malaise and this mm-hmm. uh, inability to um you know have that fight or flight you want some fight or flight yep. and it, it doesn't let you have any and but they weren't able to say this is the cause and um so well, now i don't think that would be a well a cause per or, se sorry, be more like um, a a response right or that yeah, that, so, that was the key indicator that this is present yeah the goal for this one would be to be able to use heart rate variability as an indicator of as a leading as a leading indicator yeah and uh so they weren't able to do that um the last one before the so there is actually um a hypothesis that has some weight uh, which is the second to last. The one before that is the hypothalamic hypothesis. Um, the hypothalamus releases your hormones. Um, there are contradictory patterns amongst different white papers as to the hormonal changes as a result of overtraining. So you have changes in cortisol and testosterone mm-hmm. and a few other hormones, and there isn't a clear pattern in these changes to indicate overtraining. So um the the hormone response is some part of overtraining but it's not um useful enough for us to um, make any conclusions from it so the last hypothesis this is the one that has some weight to it although it also um, doesn't have enough substantial evidence to really prove anything but it's the cytokine hypothesis so i don't know as much about cytokines probably as you do todd but um this this hypothesis attempts to um, summarize these other hypotheses in some sort of unified way. So um, it's uh, overtrained syndrome is a um, physiological adaptation or maladaptation to excessive stress from an imbalance of training and recovery. And this training causes the localized release of cytokines as part mm-hmm. of the local inflammatory mm-hmm. response. And with increased training and decreased rest, you have amplified and chronic response from the immune system. So the idea is you work so hard that your body has this really intense cytokine response to the work and um, cytokine mediated effects can cause decreased glycogen levels. So if you have too many cytokines, you can have decreased glycogen levels. Um, You can also have um, the symptoms that we talked about with low glycogen levels, but it's not the low glycogen. It's the fact that the cytokines aren't letting you have enough glycogen. Um, They also... Cytokines are also found to be higher in depressed patients and can also cause um, increased release of stress hormones. Mm -hmm. So that has to do with the um, hypothalamic hypothesis. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also cytokine-controlled processes that increase utilization of glutamine. Mm -hmm. So you use up the glutamine so you don't have any for other processes. And um, the cytokine hypothesis, uh, it attempts to cover these other hypotheses. And as you can see, you know, here are three different ways that it covers the glycogen hypothesis. It covers the um, hypothalamic uh, hypothesis. It covers the glutamine hypothesis. And it's basically saying maybe the introduction of cytokines or the excessive amount Mm -hmm. of cytokines could be a big indicator of overall you know, this overtraining syndrome, and maybe it can be a way for us to, if we can observe these cytokines and we learn about which ones are um, indicators of overtraining, that can give us a good way to identify, um, you know, the syndrome. That's actually interesting because something that didn't click until you were just talking through that right now, which is that, you know, when you talk about our hormone response, we talk about uh, sympathetic response, fight or flight, 
one of the responses to adrenaline and cortisol is actually for the body to mobilize glucose right, and release glucose from, from storage, from glycogen into the bloodstream so it's ready to use. Again, if you're trying to run away or put up a fight, you want to have that glucose ready and available for your muscles. And so that's interesting. There's, okay, well, maybe, you know, and if you're, again, sick and you have cytokine response from the immune system that's also um, sort of a a stressor which initiates that fight or flight response as well it uses that same sympathetic system uh, so you're uh, so it's interesting like there's there's certainly physiologic links that you can pull between all of these and start to say like okay yeah that could that could certainly make sense it's not like it's just a one-off thing um, out in the corner it's like, oh yeah, these things, these, there's certainly a, a, you know, a reasonable way to connect the dots of these things. Right. So this is the, um, basically the cutting edge of overtraining, uh, research. And the big thing here is that there isn't quite enough research. So there is a little bit of research and it is for the most part, the same sort of, um, contradictory evidence, although there are some interesting leads. The difficulty of finding athletes to study and the difficulty of measuring uh, these different metrics uh, makes it hard to study this stuff, but the um, the cytokine hypothesis is uh, holding a lot of weight, especially relative to the other hypotheses. Yeah, I think it, it does a nice job of linking together some of the, the elements from the others that seem at least plausible yep. um, and sort of tying it into one one leading possible leading indicator to be able to look at. Yep. So let's talk about, um, all we have to talk about is treatment and prevention. So, um, um, as, as they say, an ounce of treatment is worth a pound of cure, which I think is, um, far, far, um, more true in this case. Yeah. So the big thing here is, uh, we want prevention I mean, we'll do treatment if, yeah, if we need to, the but prevention's the way to go. Right. So, uh, Todd, you are the PT. So, um, I, I actually don't have that many notes on treatment and prevention. I think treatment, I don't actually know if they have a good treatment for, um, overtraining specifically for non-functional overreaching. You should take one to four weeks off. Um, and you know, basically like, yeah, take a month off and figure out, uh, you know, come back and feel refreshed and feel excited to ride again. And that can usually get you back to functional overreaching. Uh, but for overtraining, the only suggestion that I got was um, basically five to 10 minutes a day, increase it by five to 10 minutes each day, the activity that you're doing until you get to an hour. And then we can start to talk about maybe increasing it over an hour. You know, I've never seen anything very specific for overtraining. I've, I've certainly read different case studies and different um, examples from, uh, you know, a few athletes out there. And the the range is wide, right? And I don't know if that's, you know, individual variability that that is or if that's just, you know, athletes will be athletes and they want to push back and get back into it sooner rather than later. Um, but I, I think the, the range is wide and sometimes it can be a long time until your body recovers i mean i think the the whole analogy is perfect if you're truly in overtrained syndrome you have dug a very very deep hole and it takes a long time to climb out of that hole uh and yeah it's i don't think there's a i mean i think the fact that the research says it's very hard to pin it down it's also if it's very hard to pin down it's very hard to understand what recovery truly means 
So yeah, I've never really seen anybody like publish a protocol to do exactly this because this is the answer. I think the answer is very individual. Yeah, not, and unfortunately, a lot of uh, people who are properly overtrained are, I quit. And you don't get to see how they recover because, mm-hmm. you know, they just move on to something else or uh, they don't get the chance to, um, you know, come back or, mm-hmm. or see how they uh, how long it takes for them to improve. So regarding prevention, uh, I think that's going to be an interesting discussion. Before we start that, I want to uh, start with a white paper. So this is actually um, a collegiate swimmer. Uh, the, the group was collegiate swimmers and they had a decrease from 10% to 0% burnout when, um, the protocol called for, um, changing the mood state when, when they did a profile of mood state, mm-hmm. which is a question, a standardized questionnaire. Um, basically if their mood state decreased on this questionnaire, mm-hmm. then their, uh, total workload was decreased as well. Mm-hmm. And this caused 10% burnout, which was mm-hmm. typical for the um, the group, to decrease to 0%. So basically, if your mood, if you know, if you fill out this mood questionnaire and mm-hmm. you don't feel great, decrease the load. And, you know, that's a decent way to start to avoid the non-functional overreaching or even overtraining. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I've, I've seen different things suggested. Uh, I mean, I think at the end of the day... Again, looking at the research, we don't really know what we're supposed to look at. We need to probably look at a lot of things. And you know, if we if we are subscribing to the central governor theory, I think there's something to be said of how do you feel about this and how hard was that? I mean, I know for certainly for team sports, uh, you you have many many people which you can observe, and sometimes it's like you know, as a coach, you can set up a protocol. You know, like okay. I sort of expect the athlete to say on a zero to 10 scale, this workout was a, a seven or an eight. And then, you know, you go and you ask everybody at the end of the workout, Hey, how hard was that? Zero to 10. And you know, most people come back, like to say the mean is seven. And there's one athlete that says it was a 10. Hmm. Wait a second. Maybe this person. And you know, that this is very subjective. It takes in to account all the things that we sometimes have difficulty measuring, right? How stressed were you? How well did you sleep last night? You know, how hard was that workout really? How well did you recover from the last workout before that? All those things can kind of get captured. And sometimes something, I know it seems so simple, right? Like we were talking about all this different science and you want to poke and prod and measure this thing very precisely. But I've, I've heard some decent results from folks doing this very simple thing where you say, well, this, you know, how hard was it, everybody? Okay, well, you're you're an outlier here, and of course, you can get outliers on the other side. Like, well, you're just not working hard enough, right? Or you're lying to me. Yeah, yeah you're doing um, the protocol incorrectly. Like, yeah, yeah, you're not actually doing the exercise. So, <laughs> I think you know, I do think there's something to be said of doing some simple metrics around just how did it feel, and I, I think your coach can help you with that. And like, yeah, I prescribed this workout; it should probably be a seven for you because it's this sort of an interval. And if you're coming back saying it's a ten, uh, then we need to evaluate a little bit. Yeah, I also think it's interesting if you do compare expected RPE to actual RPE, it allows the subconscious brain to have input. Mm-hmm. If you're doing everything consciously or trying to, you know, use metrics that are measured, it's almost like because this seems like there is a subconscious component, there is this sort of mental uh, component to it. So allowing that subconscious to speak out almost by because well you should when you're giving an rpe you know you just say how you feel and Mm -hmm. that's largely um like largely influenced by all these different symptoms that you may be having and Mm -hmm. maybe you have three of the symptoms on the list and then that causes you to bump up the by two points on the rpe and then that's an indication to 
you know, whoever is making the expected RPE that um, something might be going wrong. So um, it is pretty simple, but it does seem to be a pretty good way to um, to monitor the the effects. Yeah, I, I mean, look, I, I think there's some value in some cocktail of metrics out there. Um, but at the end of the day, why not just use this simple thing that blends them all together? Like, I'm sure you could take heart rate variability and, you know, Heart rate, heart rate during your workout versus the watts, you know, and compare that moving average over well, time. What or... they should do is they should just throw a machine learning algorithm at all their data because that's what I mean. We're in we're in NorCal. That's the thing to yeah. do here. So I mean, yeah, they'll have some sort of machine learning algorithm that can determine if someone's going to be overtrained in two mm-hmm. weeks. But you can also just ask them. And if they say they felt like crap. So that's something that we should really point out is if you aren't working with a coach or a third party, then it is difficult to have this board to talk off of. And that's one of the main advantages of coaches is the ability for them to slow you down or for them to push you when you need it. But you have to make sure that your coach is is making the right decisions. And I know that some coaches, um, especially a lot of elite coaches are very performance focused. They want to make sure that, you know, you're as strong as possible. And sometimes to them, that means you're doing all the workouts as hard as you can, or as hard as possible. When in reality, it's about getting the right amount of training stimulus. So if you have an experience where you say to your coach, like, I don't think I could do this, or like, I think this is too much, or Um, I'm feeling really toast and like, I want to chill out for a bit. If you are able to communicate this to your coach and they don't respond well, then, or, you know, they increase or they maintain the workload, that could be an indication that you're not in the right situation. And maybe this isn't the right person to be working with, but you know, for the most part, and a lot of coaches are really good about this. If you say you're toast or you say this is harder than you think it should be, they're really good at responding correctly and uh, decreasing your workload, whether that is either a a complete week off or maybe having your total volume or decreasing the intensity. Um, This is what most coaches would do. And if you don't have a coach, then you need to maturely do this yourself, which Uh is incredibly difficult, Uh, especially a lot of uh, time-based athletes like um, triathletes or Ironmen or um, time trial specific cyclists. They really hate under training uh-huh. and they'll always overtrain if if you if you have to pick one you know uh getting too little stimulus or getting too much stimulus because technically it is impossible to get the exact amount of stimulus you need yeah it's that's a moving target yeah so when you you know when you pick they always go over it's better to get too much stimulus uh-huh. and then what you get is this systematic chronic stress and that's how you lead into this overtraining and so if you have that mindset and you're working by yourself, you need to learn how to have some other, you know, some angel and devil on your shoulders talking to each other to really find the right balance in between the two. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you have to understand that the the risk of undertraining is you don't perform as well as you'd like. The risk of overtraining is you don't perform for a long time nearly as well as you'd like. Yeah. And you know, I, I totally understand the, the motivation, right? You, you didn't get into a competitive sport so you could be the last person across the finish line. Like that's not why you're training hard. That's not why you have a power meter. That's not why you're doing intervals. But at the end of the day, I think you have to recognize the seriousness of overtraining and that going down that path, it's going to cost you a lot more than that 
extra set of intervals was ever going to gain you. Yep. So I mentioned earlier that um, when when we were talking about the symptoms, some interesting things and some things that can cause these symptoms without being overtraining. So the one that came to mind for me was like dehydration or severe dehydration. Um, you can get a lot of these right. same things. And uh, what's interesting is, you know, say your heater is not quite working how you want it to. And Todd, you train early in the morning. So maybe it's a little too hot in your bedroom at night and then you wake up and it's time to train right away and you're a bit dehydrated and you had trouble sleeping because it's a bit hot and, you know, your muscles feel bad because, you know, like there's just opportunities to feel these, you know, you have decreased form, mm -hmm. you have weight loss because, you know, you're dehydrated. You have all of these symptoms, but it's, you know, you need some, uh, some salt yep. and some water. Yep. yep. And, uh, so it's, it's hard because there are other things, uh, that can, cause this problem and i think the trick here is okay you, you're not going to be dehydrated for two weeks straight right you know or even a week straight a, yeah there's a duration thing it, well you know provide your you're managing your nutrition appropriately but yes i think yeah. duration is a piece of the puzzle and recognizing that oh yeah i wasn't just crabby because my boss yelled at me yesterday i was i've been crabby for a week and a half yeah hmm, that's odd or you know one bad workout a week is fine I mean, we want to have zero bad workouts a week, but one a week is okay. And, yeah. Or, uh, yeah, starting a workout, I'm like, I'm not feeling it today. Yeah. yeah that, that happens, and that's fine, and it's fine to lay low. And part of prevention of overtraining is having the maturity to say, uh, no, this this workout today is not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, believe me, I've, I've done that more than a few times, you know, gotten, you know, two intervals into six, and like, this is, this is just not going to happen today. Yep. And, you know, there there are guidelines, there are metrics out there that you can look at uh, from a power standpoint, like what you would expect your power to be and, you know, when it's time to end a workout. But you, sometimes you just know or hopefully you know or have some sense. Like, no, this is just not happening today. Yeah. And like the difference in RPE from the previous time you did this to mm -hmm. this time is uh, crazy. Or you just, you know, you can feel your heartbeat. You know, there are some things you're like, and we should probably just go home today. It's, yeah, there's, there's yeah. certainly a, a feel, a, a subjective component to this where you say, mm -hmm. no, today is not the day. I just need to do something different. Yeah. And I mean, that's not overtraining. Uh, but if you ignore that, and there are a lot of riders who are, no, I got to train. You know, I need this stimulus because I need to get stronger. And they're so desperate to get stronger that they ignore that part of their brain. And you do that too many times, you start to get into, you know, this overtraining and um, you can be without form for months as mm -hmm. a result. So, uh, yeah, overtraining is interesting. Be really careful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's such a serious setback when you when you look at it that, you know, either a coaching super helpful be as jason said if you're training yourself you just have to be really mature about how you're feeling how you're responding to your training and to make sure that you're not just overdoing it because you're super motivated and trying to get better yep so um if you liked the episode um go ahead and subscribe retweet like comment review uh five star are we allowed to ask for five stars well, if we're not, it's too late now. Yeah. Uh-oh. Uh, so, you know, uh, help us out. And uh, we want to share our experiences um, and our opinions on these important topics with as many people as possible. So if you could help us out, that'd be great. Todd, if you have anything. Well, like you said, please please do share. Uh, I want to get this out to as many people as possible. 
And until next time, keep the rubber side down.